She was initially hypercalcemic on the first admission, got the bisphosphonate, and then second admission, she was actually hypocalcemic. And in the second admission is when the diagnosis, presumptive diagnosis of light chain nephropathy is. This episode of the Global Kidney Care Podcast is hosted by Rod Chowdhury, Associate Physician, Onconephrology, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. I am your host, Rad Chowdhury. I'm an onconephrologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard Medical School. Today, we bring you our very first collaboration between the International Society of Nephrology and the American Society of Onconephrology. And in this particular episode, our goal is to highlight our onconephrology fellows and our general nephrology fellows in the United States. How are we gonna do this? Well, we have a fantastic case that has often been seen by onconephrologists in the United States, but with a twist. This is a real case where our fellows will walk us through some differential building, some pathophysiology, and reveal the ultimate diagnosis. Just so you're aware, the full case has been published on the Renal Fellow Network, Skeleton Key Group, written by Dr. Santoshi Bavi. So without further ado, I will introduce our fellows. First, we have Dr. Will Pack. He's an Onconephrology Fellow at Moral Sloan Kettering. Next, we have Dr. Rosemary Atta, who is also an Onconephrology and GN Fellow at Hofstra Northwell. We also have Dr. Elena Barbier. She's the current transplant and onconephrology fellow at Mayo Clinic. We have Dr. Shruti Alawat, who's a general nephrology fellow at the University Hospital at Case Western. We also have Dr. Totini Chatterjee, who's a nephrology fellow at Baylor College of Medicine. All right, I'm going to give it away to our first fellow, Dr. Will Pack, and let's get the case started. Sure. Now, so uh, let us start our discussion today with a clinical case. And uh, for the purpose of this t- today's discussion, we will be using SI unit throughout. So we have a 75-year-old woman who was admitted for fatigue and back pain. Her labs showed AKI with a serum creatinine of 133 micromole per liter from a baseline of 62, anemia with a hemoglobin of 8.4 grams per deciliter, hypercalcemia of 3.55 millimole per liter, while her MRI spine showed marrow infiltrating lesions. For these results, she was set for a full myeloma workup. Her serum immunofixation came back positive for IgA lambda, and 60% plasma cells was found on her bone marrow biopsy, confirming the diagnosis of multiple myeloma. Her condition was subsequently stabilized with intravenous fluids and isolandrinic acid, and she was discharged with a serum creatinine of 122. However, 10 days afterwards, she was hospitalized again for fatigue, and this time her serum creatinine shot up to 508. She was hemodynamically stable. She had no nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. She had no rash. She had not taken over-the-counter medications. And her labs this time were unrevealing, except for a mild hypocalcemia. And looking back at her myeloma labs, she had an M-spike, or a paraprotein level, of 19 grams per liter, and elevated lambda light chains of up to 340 milligrams per liter. She was then presumed to have light chain cast nephropathy, and she was treated with daracybor D, that is, daratumumab, cyclophosphamide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. She had an excellent response with her lambda light chain going down to 36.9 from the original level of 340. Her serum creatinine also improved in tandem from 508 to 301. 
So in summary, we have a 75-year-old female patient newly diagnosed of multiple myeloma, who developed an AKI, which is presumed to be from light chain cause nephropathy. All right. Well, thank you so much for that case. I thought we made the diagnosis and we can close shop and move on. Uh, but I, I, I like how the case did not actually end there. Now, I'm going to make two comments that I'm sure our viewers uh, are going to be wondering. Um, first comment is a comment on terminology. Now, and everyone's heard the terms monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance, smoldering myeloma, and multiple myeloma. If we can go left to right, starting with MGUS on the left and multiple myeloma on the extreme right, the idea is that when you move from the MGUS to the myeloma phase, essentially your bone marrow burden increases and the propensity for end organ damage increases. As you know, myel multiple myeloma is a full-blown blood cancer with end organ damage. Now, the thing that I want to point out to our listeners specifically in this case, and I'd love for you guys to comment on it as well, is there was a presumptive diagnosis of light chain cast nephropathy made. Of course, there was no biopsy data, but what are your guys' thoughts on that presumptive diagnosis with a lambda light chain of only 340 milligrams per liter? Any thoughts from the group? Uh, yeah, Rad. So I think the likelihood of having light chain cast nephropathy here is a bit low. You know, uh, the likelihood of having light chain cast nephropathy is directly associated with the level of light chain excretion. And the International Myeloma Working Group had actually defined the threshold for serum-free light chain level to develop cast nephropathy at 1,500 milligram per liter. Now, this patient only had 340 milligram per liter, and that's way below the threshold. So maybe this is not actually light chain cast nephropathy, and maybe there's something else going on here. Excellent, Rosie. So, and therefore, I think now is a good time to kind of remove our anchoring bias and move forward. And hopefully, uh, Rosie, you can walk us through some of the other differentials for acute kidney injury in someone that has a monoclonal gammopathy in general. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Ron. So I think uh, we can still break down this case of AKI to your usual pre-renal, renal, and post-renal causes. Uh, for example, like for pre-renal causes in this patient, we can think maybe of volume depletion, hypercalcemia, or NSAID use. Now, I don't think for this particular patient, the cause of kidney injury was hypercalcemia because the calcium had normalized when the patient had the AKI. So probably there's something else going on. For post-renal causes in monoclonal gammopathy, we can think of stones like calcium stones, even uric acid stones, although this is becoming somewhat controversial. Now, the most important thing, of course, with monoclonal gammopathy, we can have many different intrinsic renal causes of AKI. So paraproteins can actually affect all the renal compartments. And as we just said, we don't really have to have the full-blown myeloma picture to produce the renal damage. 
like for example, the glomeruli can be affected and we can see all different kinds of GN, uh, like uh, PGNMID, light chain deposition disease, C3GN, AL amyloid, immunotactoid, cryoglobulinemic GN, and even the medications that we use to treat the myeloma can also cause GNs, like for example, uh, bortezomib, which the patient got can cause TMA. Uh, and our patient got a bisphosphonate, so she may even have collapsing FSGS. So we can think of uh, multiple glomerular diseases here. And if we talk, uh, like aside from the glomeruli, uh, we can also have tubular interstitial involvement with paraproteinemias. Like for example, the proximal tubules can be damaged and that's what we call light chain proximal tubulopathy. The only problem in our patient is that light chain proximal tubulopathy is seen more uh, in CAPA-restricted disease and in MGRS. Our patient had multiple myeloma and lambda light chain predominance, so that doesn't really fit here. If the distal tubules are filled with a paraprotein cast, that's what we usually call light chain cast nephropathy. But you can also have tubular interstitial nephritis, or you can have tumor lysis syndrome, uh, and that can also be induced by the bortezomib. So in our case, the patient got some bortezomib, and then she developed hyperuricemia and hyperphosphatemia. So it's possible that tumor lysis syndrome could have been one of the contributors to her renal injury. But our patient also had some hypokalemia, and that is unusual for TLS. So I think if we want to think about the differential for our patient, I would say that light chain cast nephropathy is right there at the top. Uh, now, she did have hypercalcemia, as we said, and that could have been triggered because usually there has to be some precipitating factor for light chain cast nephropathy, like dehydration, hypercalcemia, or NSAID use. But the only big problem with this diagnosis, as we just said, is that uh, the level of light chain excretion in our patient was much lower than the threshold of 1,500 milligram per liter. So maybe this also doesn't fit with light chain cast nephropathy. And what we really need to do here is a kidney biopsy. I don't know. What do you think, everyone? So, Rosie, one interesting point you made, and just to clarify for our listeners, she was initially hypercalcemic on the first admission, got the bisphosphonate, and then second admission, she was actually hypocalcemic, and in the second admission is when the diagnosis, presumptive diagnosis of light chain cast nephropathy is. But, Rosie, you're right. What what are your thoughts or everyone's thoughts about making that diagnosis? Would you have gotten a biopsy? Would love to hear everyone's thoughts. Rosie, I think in the multiplicity of renal lesions possible with multiple myeloma and some of the atypical features of this case, I would have favored proceeding with a biopsy if the risks weren't prohibitive. Will, what are your thoughts? Yes, I agree with Rosie too. Uh, I think it is worthwhile to note that uh, in patients with uh, multiple myeloma and renal insufficiency, the combination of low urinary albumin excretion, as evidenced by a low urine albumin to total protein ratio less than 10%, with a urine albumin to creatinine ratio of less than 30, combined with a high serum-free light chain level of over 500 milligrams per liter, 
light chain cause nephropathy is considered a probable diagnosis and a biopsy may not be necessary. However, in our case, the serum-free light chain does not reach this cutoff, and a kidney biopsy, as Rosie has said, would give us so much more information in this setting. Had the patient had much higher levels of serum-free light chains, though, the expert opinion does recommend chemotherapy with consideration of light chain removal by extracorporeal means, such as plasmapheresis or uh, high cutoff dialysis. Um, but uh, it's a controversial thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Will. I'm, I'm glad you brought, brought up extracorporeal removal of light chains. So if we look at the plasmapheresis literature, it it is sort of uh, three different or four different studies uh, with all conflicting results. Uh, one key thing that we have to remember is the fact that oftentimes the studies may have not had the most optimal plasma cell directed therapy on board. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And as the idea would be that um, with the cyborgy, the chemo, you would stop the plasma cells, and with the plasmapheresis, you would remove the toxic light chains. Now, um, one thing to keep in mind, we do know that a lot of your hematological response and your survival is dependent on how your kidneys do. The one area, as you, the second point that you mentioned, is the high cutoff dialysis. So, Interestingly enough, there's a form of dialysis primarily in Europe called high cutoff, which is different from high flux. Basically, high cutoff dialyzers have larger pore size. If you think about a heavy chain, roughly they're about 150 kilodaltons, um, whereas high cutoff dialyzers have a pore size of 50 to 60 kilodaltons. Um, therefore, the one study, the Meyer trial, actually had showed a statistically significant uh, dialysis independence by using high cutoff dialyzers, dialyzers at six and 12 months in this specific patient population. Now, once again, like Will said, because the data is so uh, small and fragmented, the expert opinion currently stands that if you're going to use plasmapheresis, uh, you have to have a presumptive diagnosis of light chain cast nephropathy, which is greater than 1,500 milligrams per liter of light chains with some Ben Jones proteinuria. So to get away from the more controversial topic, uh, let's talk about the differentials in place uh, in general for dysproteinemia. Now, many will say that, um, uh, you know, in the MGRA stage, uh, you may not have full-blown renal decline. Um, certain MGRS lesions like PGNMID, light chain proximal tubulopathy present more with AKI versus uh, MIDD lesion, which, be, which may be a little bit more indolent or smoldering, so to speak. Um, but Will, I'll let you take it over again and you can proceed with the remaining part of the case. Sure. So uh, as it happens, our patient was hospitalized again three weeks after, again for fatigue and again without any nausea, vomiting or diarrhea with a clinically euvolemic status. Of course, we are nephrologists and we are more concerned about her metabolic profile. Her creatinine this time was stable at 121, but her electrolytes were now notable for new onset of borderline to low serum potassium of 3.3 millimole per liter, inorganic phosphorus of 0.78 millimole per liter, and a magnesium level of 0.8 millimole per liter. Serum uric acid was also low at 0.173 millimole per liter. So do these results ring a bell for anyone here? 
and what differential diagnosis shall we consider? Thanks, Will. I, I think at this point we're all thinking the same thing. This sounds a lot like a Fanconi syndrome. Hypophosphatemia, hypouricemia, you often see hypomagnesium and hypokalemia in association as well. I would expect to see a non-NIN gap metabolic acidosis, glucosuria evidence on a urinalysis, as well as amino aciduria. Do you know, Will or Rad, uh, if she had any of these additional findings? Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, we did order um, a UA and we sent off amino acid studies. On the UA, uh, there was um, tremendous glucosuria in the absence of diabetes, in the absence of SGLT2I use, and also the urinary studies were also positive for amino acids as well. Perfect. So I think we can feel fairly confident now that we're dealing with a Fanconi syndrome. Now, the question is, what's causing this Fanconi syndrome? You can get Fanconi syndrome from proximal tubular dysfunction, whether it be due to injury or due to a drug. But in this case, in the setting of multiple myeloma, my, my first thought is, could it be related to the excess production of free light chains? Typically, the light chains are reabsorbed with proximal tubule. When an excess is present, it overwhelms the proximal tubule's capacity for reabsorption. So you end up with overflow tubular proteinuria, which you can see with an elevated urine to protein to creatinine ratio. And if we do urine protein, to, uh, urine protein electrophoresis, we can see monotypic free light chains as well. There are a few things though that don't quite fit with a light chain proximal tubulopathy. The first is that this is fairly uncommon in association of multiple myeloma. The other piece that doesn't fit uh, typically, we see light chain proximal tubulopathy in the setting of a kappa light chain paraproteinemia, not a lambda light chain as our patient has. There are specific subgroups of kappa light chains that can be toxic to the proximal tubule because they resist proteolysis, which predisposes them to form crystal aggregates in the cytoplasm and lysosomes of the proximal tubule, and as a result, cause the damage that then leads to the Fanko syndrome. I just described the crystalline variant of light chain proximal tubulopathies, but there's also a non-crystalline variant, which is even more rare, but that's the variant that can be seen with lambda light chain paraproteinemia. Boy, at this point, I really wish we had a renal biopsy, as I think it would have been really helpful. Is it possible she presents with multiple renal lesions, or is there potentially another insult unrelated to her paraproteinemia that we can attribute the Fanconi syndrome to? I think we all agree that the initial AKI is unlikely to be due to a light chain proximal tubulopathy, as these typically present with a more indolent course, often as a monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance, which again speaks to the likelihood of multiple processes at play here. Awesome. Thank you, Elena, for that explanation. Um, now, we'll, we'll, let's talk about some more characteristics about Fanconi syndrome. I'm going to pass it over to Shruti. Shruti, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Fanconi syndrome? Yes. Um, so Fanconi syndrome can either be inherited or acquired. If it is inherited, it usually presents much earlier in life and can have an autosomal dominant or autosomal recessive pattern of inheritance. Some examples that are identified in the pediatric literature include hereditary fructose intolerance, mitochondrial cytopathies, cystinosis, low syndrome, or dent syndrome. Adults, however, with Fanconi syndrome usually present with have an acquired type. There are several acquired causes that include medications such as antivirals like tenofovir, chemotherapeutic agents like cisplatin, carboplatin, ifosfamide, immunosuppressive drugs like azathioprine, antibiotics like gentamicin, sodium valproate, iron chelators, et cetera. 
Lead poisoning and other heavy metal poisoning are also implicated in this disease process. Excellent. Totini, what do you got for us? So Fanconi syndrome may also be seen in overt hematological malignant disease or indolent malignant diseases, of course, like MGUS or idiopathic Benz-Jones proteinuria. The most common associated malignancy, of course, is multiple myeloma. Other associated malignancies are primary amyloidosis, Waldenstrom's, and CLL. Fanconi syndrome may sometimes even precede overt multiple myeloma. Shruti, how do these patients usually present? Patients with Fanconi will often seek medical attention for back pain, bone pain, or generalized fatigue, such as our patient. Symptoms can be confused with myeloma bone pain. Many patients are often asymptomatic or may present with proximal muscle weakness. Unexplained hypouricemia can sometimes be the only, only clue to the diagnosis of Fanconi syndrome. So, all, so what I'm hearing from the, the group is the fact that, well, if this was going to be myeloma-related Fanconi syndrome, then it would have been more consistent with a light-chain proximal tubulopathy. However, this patient has full-blown myeloma, and light-chain proximal tubulopathy is quite rare to happen while you have concomitant multiple myeloma. So are we missing something else? Are there any drugs or chemotherapeutics that are involved here that could also cause the Fanconi syndrome? Yes, another possible cause of Fanconi syndrome is tubular toxicity caused by chemotherapeutic agents. Some of the common chemotherapeutic agents implicated in this disease process are cisplatin, carboplatin, and iphosphamide, which our patient did not receive. She did receive cyclophosphamide, which is a structural isomer of iphosphamide. However, it is not known to be nephrotoxic. Apart from her chemotutini, can you think of other medications that this patient received that might have caused Fanconi syndrome? Yes, actually. Fanconi syndrome in this patient could also be caused by zoledronic acid. This was given to treat her hypercalcemia during her first admission. Zoledronic acid, as we know, is nephrotoxic. There are also several case reports of this causing a Fanconi-type syndrome. The time of onset of Fanconi syndrome caused by this medication can vary widely. It can go anywhere from days to weeks to even months after exposure. In our case, the patient received zoledronic acid and a month later developed a Fanconi syndrome. There is no established relationship yet between the dosage of zoledronic acid and the incidence of Fanconi syndrome. In mouse models, we've seen that cytotoxic effects were only seen at higher administration doses, however. Shruti, could you walk us through how this comes about pathophysiologically? Sure. Um, the pathophysiology of how zoledronic acid causes nephrotoxicity and Fanconi syndrome is not very well understood. In mouse models, it has shown to cause defective fatty be acid beta oxidation, leading to elevated lipid accumulation, which ultimately leads to nephrotoxicity. Renal biopsy done in a limited number of cases has shown ATN, TIN, and interstitial fibrosis with tubular atrophy. In most cases, however, Fanconi syndrome is reversible after stopping the zoledronic acid on short-term follow-up. In our patient on the day of discharge, the electrolyte abnormalities had resolved without any form of supplementation. Overall, nearly all of the evidence regarding zoledronic acid leading to Fanconi syndrome is anecdotal. Some limitations of these case reports are lack of long-term follow-up data, 
lack of data to determine risk factors for developing Fanconi, such as low initial EGFR and a lack of kidney biopsy. Excellent. So we're sounds like we're hypothesizing that because of the pathophysiology that this and the timeline, it seems to coincide with the zoandronic acid more, the, the etiology of the Fanconi syndrome. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, Rad. All right, excellent. Any other final thoughts about this case? Would you have done anything differently? And you can't say get a biopsy. I, I think Rad. <laughs> I was going to say get a biopsy. <laughs> I, I think Rad. One thing we didn't really have a chance to talk about is, you know, going back to what the best therapy uh, would have been for this patient. For the initial presentation with uh, the presumed cast nephropathy, whether or not we would have wanted to use um, Plex or high cutoff hemodialysis, just based on expert opinion. I think it's worth mentioning uh, resource limitations as well and the importance of having additional data to make these decisions when other centers are looking for this data to justify using those therapies. Um, specifically, I mentioned this because I, I did my training in Canada, and, and we're not necessarily resource limited, but we are a single-payer model where we have to justify the therapies that we use. And on many occasions, we've run to situations where we had to ration uh, the amount of plasmapheresis that we did on certain days because we had patients presenting with indications that have been established. And we, we did have a patient with uh, presumed cast nephropathy that we had a hematologist uh, ask us to perform plasmapheresis on, and, and we couldn't justify it. So I'm just wondering, the expert amongst us here, are there any trials that are trying to answer this question definitively currently? So Elena's asking me, I suppose. <laughs> uh, okay, so great point about resource limitations. So here's, here's the... Uh, here's uh, one thing that uh, you have to keep in mind when you do plasmapheresis uh, and that we didn't talk about and is the fact that it's you're committed, right? So what I mean by that is uh, the end portion of that plasmapheresis is sort of up in the air. Your goal is to target about a 50% reduction by the end of cycle one. Now, that may take four sessions, that may take five, six, or more. Um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, I can't say for Canada, but in the United States at bigger centers, um, it's a transfusion medicine driven um, uh, procedure. And it, there is a fair point to say that plasmapheresis, aside from the resource part of it, also comes with its limitations from a side effect profile. Things that you worry about when someone's on extended plasmapheresis um, is hypocalcemia, alkalosis. Of course, uh, the infectious risk goes up, as we know from um, you know, our ANCA data. So uh, it, it, is, it is a challenging uh, buy-in from multiple stakeholders. And of course, Elena is absolutely right. The resource commitment is, is tremendous. Imagine doing plasmapheresis daily, you know, on a patient, uh, and and you know having multiple um, providers and ancillary staff providing that service. Now, picking it, it comes down to I think to a certain degree is um, finding the right uh, moment and time to do it, and that we're still learning about. And to your point, Elena, um, there there are current studies that are. Um, are in the data gathering phase that will be trying to answer some of these questions, who the right person to do plasmapheresis is on, um, what type of outcomes uh, truly can we expect from plasmapheresis. So more to come on that uh, on that uh, front. 
but otherwise, um, you know, it is expert opinion. And uh, when you are in that situation, it's going to be a multidisciplinary discussion, uh, including involving the patient as well in terms of the risk benefit profile. Thank you, Rad. What other questions do you all have? Are you, are you satisfied with this diagnosis? Would have done anything differently? I will say one limitation. I guess time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah, the one limitation is we obviously didn't have any prospective data. What we did know is when the patient was discharged, uh, they were not requiring, uh, their electrolytes were replenished or not, were not requiring um, further re uh, replacement through the IV. So, uh, Having said that, I really want to thank all our participants uh, for joining us today. A uh, couple of folks that I need to mention, uh, but before I do that, there are some take-home messages for the listeners. So take-home message number one, as you all eloquently put it, uh, the differential diagnosis of AKI is very broad when there's a monoclonal protein involved. It's not always light-chain cast nephropathy. Uh, therefore, keep an open mind try your best to see if you can obtain a biopsy. Um, now, the other takeaway point that was important is that light chain proximal tubulopathy uh, is more of a kappa process, and it rarely ever occurs concomitantly in the context of full-blown multiple myeloma. In our case, this was a lambda process and the patient had multiple myeloma. So invoking light chain proximal tubulopathy in this case uh, makes it a little bit more difficult from a pathophysiology standpoint. Whenever there is hypokalemia, hypophosphatemia, hypouricemia, metabolic acidosis, always think about your differentials for Fanconi syndrome. Um, and it could be the disease process itself, or it could be the medications that are received. So those are your main takeaways. I wanted to thank the American Society of Oncology and the partnership by the International Society of Nephrology for giving us this platform. I wanted to thank our participants, Will, Elena, Rosemary, Totini, and Shruti uh, for providing us this great walkthrough of the case. Uh, I want to thank our listeners, and hopefully you'll hear from us soon again. Thank you. Thank Thanks you, everyone. Start.